0: I'm Nick Andrews, a podcast producer in Philadelphia. My brother Chris is a contractor in Washington, D.C., and this is our show, Game Theory, where we talk about strategy, decision-making, policy, and history. In this episode, we discuss how the bomb doesn't need to be dropped to be used.
1: We've lived in a nuclear world for more than 75 years, and the effects of nuclear deterrence are well understood and taken as a given at this point. But before 1945, if one country wanted to punish an enemy and force it to comply, it first had to defeat that enemy in war, or at least gain enough ground invading the territory that the enemy had no choice but to obey. Bullying on the international scene was much more costly and difficult because of the enormous amount of resources it took to influence even smaller, weaker states. Even the greatest generals like Napoleon learned that eventually, a nation's power ran out once it got too far from home. Nuclear weapons changed all of that. The bomb is so powerful, so dangerous, so utterly devastating compared to other weapons of war, that even merely possessing it was enough to give a country power. If you could deliver a nuclear bomb with any reliability, suddenly you were able to deal an immense, unacceptable amount of punishment out to adversaries. And this is the key bit. You didn't need to fight or win a war first in order to hurt your enemy.
0: And welcome to episode 6 of Game Theory, the Game Theory Podcast, all about strategy, decision-making, policy, and competition. I am
1: Nick Andrews. I am Chris Andrews. What's up, everybody? So,
0: Chris, uh, you went to graduate school and you studied nukes, and so we are finally giving you a pitch you can hit. And it's time to square it up, not try to do too much. Just put the bat on the ball and let, 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 let your body do the work here.
1: Yeah, yeah, at long last, finally something that I know at least a little bit about. Nick, let me ask you, what do you know about nuclear weapons?
0: So I know, I, I'm a history nerd, so I know the following. Let's just like s- spill it for like 30 seconds. I know the Manhattan Project was essentially an all-star team of people. Yeah. Uh, I know that they are incredibly devastating in terms of like like volcanic eruption like extraterrestrial, like asteroid-level destruction, plus I know radiation. Oh, yeah. I've watched Chernobyl. Yeah. I understand that everyone thinks that you can make two atoms together, but really that it's all built on cutting them in half. I know that Einstein invented them, kind of.
1: Uh, almost all that's exactly right. Yeah, so Einstein was pretty instrumental in figuring out a lot of the physics of how weapons work, but everything else uh, was pretty much right. One thing I want to get out of the way... Just right out of the gate. You said Chernobyl. I bet that makes people harken back to like 2019 when that hit HBO series came out. It was all the rage. I just rewatched it recently. And I just want to say to everybody, what happened at Chernobyl was an unmitigated disaster. But it is not what would happen after a nuclear weapon goes off. A nuclear weapon going off would be incalculably worse. Yeah. So much more devastating. And we all saw how bad Chernobyl was. So just trying to gauge our understanding here.
0: So, Chris, in preparation, I've read your preparation for this episode, and you have cited two essential works of Western civilization, cultural history. And those are, of course, The Office and Inglorious Bastard. So let's start with The Office. Let's try to explain what violence versus the threat of violence is all about.
1: Well, yeah, so... As I mentioned in the introduction to our episode today, nuclear weapons kind of change the order of battle, so to speak. Before, you had to beat somebody before you could do damage to them or hurt their economy or hurt their citizenry or something like that. But now, if you have a nuclear weapon, you don't necessarily have to beat somebody in war in order to punish them. And what that allows you to do is basically point to your nuclear weapon and say, look, this is what's going to happen to you if you cross me. And I think that's perfectly illustrated and very easy to understand in The Office in Inglorious Bastards. And there's two scenes in particular that stand out in those. Uh, let's talk about The Office one first, just because I miss it. I only watch it on Netflix. Sorry, NBC. I'm not getting Peacock just to watch a few seasons of The Office and call it good.
0: I like Peacock. We'll talk about that later.
1: Yeah, we can discuss that. So the episode of The Office that I'm thinking of the situation is Dwight and Jim have this brief interaction It perfectly sums up the mutually assured destruction element of nuclear weapons so in the episode Jim is having a frustrating day, he's missing Pam he's trying to connect with her over the phone when she's trying to go do laundry and they just keep missing each other and Jim is getting really frustrated so finally Jim asks Pam over a phone call to switch to instant messaging so he can have a private conversation without his noisy, annoying, quirky co-workers getting on his case. Naturally Dwight, being the nosy authority worshiper that he is, antagonizes Jim and tries to get him to share what he's typing in his chat with Pam. So obviously Jim demurs. And it's at this juncture that we get into a true deterrence dynamics. So the next three lines of dialogue summarize the entire concept of mutual assured destruction. So Dwight looks at Jim and says, I'm gonna write you up for not working. Dwim, Dwim, Jim immediately turns back to Dwight and says, I'm going to write you up for not working. So Dwight gets this kind of defeated but respectful expression on his face just goes, fine, neither of us will write the other up for not working. <laughs> and that's deterrence.
0: I got it. So let me get let me let me see if I can interpret what you're saying is that I'm going to bomb you with a nuclear weapon and kill all your citizens for the next hundred years. I'm going to bomb you and kill all your citizens. Fine, we won't bomb each other.
1: That's exactly right. And that concept right there, that simple two-party standoff formed the foundation for a concept called strategic stability for decades during the Cold War. In fact, strategic stability was such an important concept that once the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed to establish strategic stability in a mutually assured destruction environment... That lasted through to today. They still have strategic stability talks between the U.S. and Russia. And it's a very simple concept, but it's very, very powerful. And there aren't really a whole lot of ways out of it. It's kind of like our Nash equilibrium. Yeah. You can either choose to cooperate or not cooperate. And, and it's it's in everybody's best interest to uh, try not to cut a fat hog in the rear.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, yeah, what a phrase that is. Okay, so then there's there's a similar one, and just to just to drive the point home, in Inglorious Bastards, which is great. Brad Pitt absolutely yes. murdered this role.
1: Oh, spectacular! So I think everybody who's seen Inglorious Bastards remembers the scene where the British guy goes into the basement with some of the bastards and von Hammersmark, Mark, the actress, and they try to set up this secret meeting. And they're kind of ambushed by that one weird, creepy German guy sitting in the corner just drinking a boot, reading a book. There's uh, the other enlisted German soldiers off playing cards or doing whatever it is they do. Then they get caught. And there's that great line, there's only one thing left for you to do. Say Auf Wiedersehen to your Nazi balls. And then they just go into this (laughs) explosive shootout. Everybody dies except for our boy, Wilhelm, who just became a father to his son, Maximilian, and Von Hammersmark, who's laying on the ground. Now upstairs, of course, everybody remembers, Lieutenant Aldo Rain and some of the other bastards are waiting for extraction. The scene is, Wilhelm has a machine gun that he's managed to pick up out of the fight. And he is securing the room. Only Von Hammer's mark is down there. So the Americans want to get her out.
0: Mm.
1: Aldo Rain opens negotiations and says, okay, we need to trust each other. This isn't going to work if we don't trust each other. And that means we can't have guns. No guns me, no guns you. So Wilhelm agrees. Aldo Raine descends the spiral staircase, looks around the corner, and sees that Wilhelm is still holding his machine gun. Obviously that's a problem. He responds, that's not what we agreed to. That's a Mexican standoff. That was not the deal. (laughs) Wilhelm says, that's not a Mexican standoff. You'd have to have guns on me for it to be a Mexican standoff. That's not what's going on here. And so Aldo responds with another perfect encapsulation of the mutually assured destruction nuclear threat. He says, you shoot us, we're dead. They got grenades up top. They drop them down here, you're dead. That's a Mexican standoff. I
0: find this example much more accurate for a couple of reasons because it's a bit more complicated jim and dwight is very simple you rat on me i rat on you the only thing to do is to shut up this is different because what happens is move one we agree to no guns move two someone breaks that publicly move three person calls them out for that move four the person who calls them out tells them that actually what well, i didn't tell you is that i was lying i also have guns right and that's sort of what we've seen in relationships between countries and international organizations over and over again do you have a nuke no well we agreed to no nukes well we have a nuke though like but take get rid of it but uh but oh wait we also have a nuke by the way just in case you were thinking about using your nuke it's much more convoluted than just a and b let's both shut up so they don't get in trouble it's it's so complicated with the order in which you reveal what you have and you're asking for people's trust so nobody wants to be the country that doesn't have a nuke when other people do. And that's sort of what we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of complex dynamics that go into nuclear deterrence. It's not always just fine, I won't write you up for not working if you don't write me up for not working. Especially when more countries get added to the calculation, things get a lot more difficult to think about. In the history of the world, there have been a few nuclear states. Some of those states Are no longer nuclear. They've given up their weapons either by force or by choice. Who are those? So after the Soviet Union broke up, there were a ton of nuclear weapons scattered throughout. So Ukraine had nuclear weapons. Kazakhstan had nuclear weapons. And the United States basically agreed under some pretty cool government programs to go in and help those countries get rid of their nuclear weapons safely, securely, and it turns out that there were a lot of other issues with things like nuclear material storage in the mm-hmm. former Soviet Union. And there were a lot of very involved, very high profile efforts by the U.S. and some by Russia to help secure that material so that randos wouldn't just walk into a warehouse, see some unlabeled cans and take uranium to show their friends or right. sell in the black market. Right. So those states, those former Soviet states, nice. are considered to be former nuclear weapon states. And then there's only one state that voluntarily gave up its nuclear arsenal Can I guess? by choice. Yes. Germany. No. So Damn. Germany never did, developed nuclear weapons.
0: Oh, I remember this. My history tell, teacher taught it to me like this. It was after World War II, and they said, hey, we're German engineers we would like a seat at the defense council and like the, the qualifier for the defense council essentially was to have a nuke. And they said, well, we don't have a nuke, but we would like a seat. And everyone says, you don't have a nuke. And they said, well, would you like us to change that? And they said, no, you can come to the defense council. I think, is that about right? I think interesting. Right. Yeah. No, I,
1: I, I, wasn't thinking of that example. Actually, I listened to a talk at a bar in Washington, DC, not too long ago, which of course, I can't. Is, I can't
0: even describe yeah. the toolbaggery of the sentence you just said. Like that is incredible. Yeah, what a sentence! sentence. Just I say hate it again, Just say it again for the people, please. Please. please,
1: please. <laughs> I went to a bar one time near some embassies <laughs> to talk about the former German
0: <laughs> nuclear program and okay, we'll get to the top. Like, we'll, I'll make fun of you for that for years but like of this, course yeah
1: thanks everybody <laughs> there were some interesting points there one of which was according to research that's being done at UMD right now some of the material that the Germans used to build their reactor is still out there it's not accounted for and they had huh. these cool kind of hanging... Uranium strings, where it was like a string and then a square uranium, and then like a string and then a square uranium, and it kind of looked like uh, like Christmas lights, except it could kill you. And <laughs> so they're trying to track down some of those squares are like missing, like they accounted for nearly all of them, but some of them are just out there. But one of the things I took away from that discussion was that the Germans thought that we wouldn't be able to get to a bomb. The physicists there kind of concluded sort of after germany had already its last chapter had been written so to speak for the reich Mm -hmm. they kind of concluded that it wouldn't be possible to build a nuclear weapon and it would be really really difficult of course they didn't want anybody to know that and reportedly when the allies came and took over germany and the scientists found out and they learned that the us and canada and great britain had combined in the Manhattan Project to make a working nuclear bomb. They were kind of stunned. Mm. Uh, I don't know any more details than that. If any of the history buffs who are listening to this happen to know the story of that, please let us know.
0: Yeah, we have a Facebook, a TikTok, and an Instagram
1: now. Yeah. We're all over the place. So hit us up. But so Who's left? Okay, so my guess was question. Germany.
0: Um, I don't know who else that could possibly be. Britain, maybe?
1: The answer is South Africa. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, Not so South Africa was feeling pretty isolated in the 1980s. I imagine. wonder why.
0: Yeah, I I, like, you know what? Let's, sure. let's pump the brakes on that right now. Yeah. That is for a much later discussion for people who are qualified. Yeah, I know where We're, you're going.
1: Anyway. So anyway, the point <laughs> is that after a sustained campaign by pretty much everybody in the international community to isolate and shun apartheid and kick them out of important UN organizations and other international bodies, they decided it was in their best interest to give up the nuclear weapons. I'm sure. There was also another factor at play, which is that the apartheid regime saw its own demise coming. The writing was on the wall, and all those soon-to-be-powerless, well, soon-to-be-out-of-power white folks didn't want to leave nuclear weapons in the hands of a newly elected black government. Uh, so racial factors at play, of course, of course. I didn't even think
0: about that. I thought that what you're trying to say is that they were giving them away to other states, but that is interesting.
1: Yeah, no, they they decommissioned and downblended, and they're, to my knowledge, there is no more life in the South African nuclear weapons program. There's no such thing. Yeah, interesting. Interestingly, I think... So they built their, they built and decommissioned their devices in the early 90, in the late eighties, early nineties, and I think this is the case. They were the last surviving nuclear bombs that had the same design as the Little Man or the Little Boy, not the Little Man, the Little Boy the Fat man. bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima on August sixth, nineteen forty-five. Uh, all the rest used the design that was employed with the Fat Man device, which is a implosion bomb and we can get into that a little bit later, but that's just an interesting little tidbit. But to circle all the way back to our <laughs> initial discussion, when you have multiple nuclear states in the international dynamic, things can get really complicated. I don't know if it's fortunate for us per se, but it does simplify things that by far the biggest nuclear arsenals in history have been the US and Russia. right It's kind of like we've got Everest and Kilimanjaro and then a bunch of foothills scattered throughout in China and the U.K. and France and Israel and then later India and Pakistan. Right. The U.S. and Russian arsenals are the big dogs, and they have always been the big dogs. Ballpark. How many weapons do you think the U.S. had in the stockpile at the maximum during the Cold War? I
0: just watched a TikTok, and those of you TikTok nerds will know what I'm talking about. There's this guy that just does data races throughout time. So it's just a bar graphs, and you just watch the bar graphs race each other. So I know, I know what's interesting. But this is a great one. We'll link to it in the show notes. This TikTok, just because it's entertaining, but it also shows kind of the vibe of where it was a race to proliferate, and then now it's a race to non-proliferate. So the bar graphs are changing sizes. So I'm gonna, based on that memory, I'm going to guess that the U.S. at one point had. And I'm not. I, mean, I feel like I'm gonna be so far off. If This feels low. I'm gonna go 1,100.
1: Oh man, we have more than that now. Why? Well, that's that's a good like question. Seven. That's a question that people ask themselves at the time. Huh. At at its maximum, the US nuclear arsenal had more than 30,000 nuclear weapons in it. More than 30,000 individual warheads that could be used up. to attack a military or a city. And and this is another crazy thing. When you talk in terms of scale of different bombs, it's the the Explosive yield of a bomb is measured in something called a kiloton. And if you get a thousand kilotons, you get into like millions of tons of TNT. So that's a megaton. So you hear about a 10 megaton nuke. Okay, you have 10 million tons of TNT equivalent explosive power in that. In the Cold War, we had a lot of inaccurate intercontinental ballistic missile systems. So you could be off by like a lot, like hundreds of meters, uh, sometimes even kilometers. But if you had a big enough bomb that had a huge enough blast radius, like 40 miles, you could still hit your target even if you didn't even come close to hitting your target. So we had huge multi-megaton warheads in the stockpile. And now we don't have anything that's over a megaton. The U.S. has downsized on that. So not only have we gotten rid of a huge majority of our nuclear weapons, we're down well, well below that. That's wild. Yeah, we we're we're at like a fraction of that.
0: Thirty thousand, like that. That's I mean I'm sure that you and other nerds have calculated this, but like, that's incalculable damage for my brain.
1: Yeah, one of the one of the expressions, it, it, movies like Doctor Strange Love, or uh, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Start Subscribing to Game Theory, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of captures the spirit of the era. There's that famous line. Well, well sir, we're looking at. 10 to 20 million dead. No more, depending on the brakes. And it's just crazy how you can talk about this scale of destruction. In my view, the, the sheer scale of destruction that nuclear weapons are capable isn't really something that the human mind can wrap itself around. And so we have to resort to talking about things in terms of how many kilotons or megatons we use and how many thousands of warheads we have. When really, if all the nuclear weapons in the world right now were to detonate, I'm not a physicist and I haven't calculated this, but I would wager that we would basically make the human species extinct if they all just went off at once. And we have a fraction of what was in the Soviet and the American stockpile during the arms race of the Cold War. And it's just crazy. And so one of my favorite lines that I first heard in grad school when people were talking about this crazy proliferation of nukes was that they kind of had to target all these sites in the Soviet Union they have these crazy targeting plans. But at a certain point, the bombs aren't going to get you more military advantage. They're just going to make the rubble bounce because <laughs> everything is going to be destroyed so thoroughly by that point that what's the reason for having that 15,000th nuclear weapon? Yeah.
0: Well, it's just to measure how great we are and measure mm-hmm. other things.
1: Yeah, of course, the longer and more <laughs> missiles we have... <laughs>
0: It's true, though. That's what it was. That's 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 what the, that's what the race really was. So now the arsenal you're saying is going down for everybody and everybody seems to be sort of on the same page. However, what we did, us and the Soviets by racing, we made other people want to race and the people that didn't get to race then they wanted to race later and they want to race now. And that includes, of course, Iran and other countries We're like, I can understand wanting to be in the Mexican standoff we as a country and the soviet union as a country have created the demand for having one of these things
1: yeah it's it's abundantly clear to well it's been abundantly clear to a lot of regimes and ruling political parties around the world for a long time if you're gonna have a seat at the big boy table if you're gonna make global security decisions and global strategy decisions you gotta have nuclear weapons it's yep. not a coincidence that the permanent five members of the U.N. Security Council, China, Russia, the United States, the United Kingdom and France, are also the five countries that are formally defined by the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons as nuclear weapons states. Yep. So we already talked about Israel, India, Pakistan, North Korea. They all have nuclear weapons, but they're not defined by this Non-Proliferation treaty, the NPT, as nuclear weapons states. Because they weren't at the time. And so that formal designation really sets these five security council members and five nuclear weapon states apart. And if you look at who's been running the world for the past 70, 80 years, it's those countries. They make the rules. It's in the global north, and the global south just kind of has to go along for the ride. And it turns out that not everybody is psyched about that. And some other players think, well, Maybe we'd like to have a say in our future instead of just letting the West dictate terms for us.
0: Yeah, and and like that's it's not an unreasonable thing. Just because you weren't there scientifically and didn't have the resources at the time doesn't mean that you don't now. And that's what we see happening in the news. But I want to transition to, I guess, the the scope of what we're talking about when we talk about why this is why this changed warfare. So we think about like the great militaries in history. Um, I think about it as a history nerd the Mongols. The Huns, uh, various Aztec and Maya armies, the Incan Empire, these these the Romans, of course, and and like they they conquered things and they were making decisions in their regions and aspects of the globe. The, the British Navy, the Dutch Navy, but when we split the atom and we've created this energy, it made it a different thing than just having the biggest navy or the best army or the craziest warriors. It is a it's a cheat code essentially.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing why? why? Like, what, what, is,
0: what, what I'm asking is like, why? What is different about it, scientifically, than just having all the Tomahawk missiles or having all the TNT?
1: I'll answer that question right after the break. And we're back. Nick, you just asked me what makes nuclear weapons different from all the other weapons that all human beings have been using to fight all wars for all of time. There have been military innovations over time, things like riding horses and building cars and building guns and airplanes and making big bombs. Smallpox. Exactly. There have been a lot of innovations in warfare, but by far, by far the most significant was the development of the nuclear weapon. And that goes back to some fundamental science. So those folks who are listening to us, who like science, buckle up because you're in for a good time the history of the discovery of how all this nuclear stuff worked is so fascinating and it's it's amazing how quickly it happened high school chemistry students who pay like a modicum of attention in class know more about how the physical world works than people did a hundred years ago total they didn't know what an atom looked like on the inside and they had to go through these crazy painstaking experiments to figure it out but eventually they did And it turns out that all the matter around us, all the physical things that we can interact with in the world are made up of basically three fundamental particles. Electrons, protons, and neutrons. And in case you've forgotten since high school chemistry, the way that's all structured together is imagine a big cloud of electrons flying around. and They're super tiny. They're like the head of a pin. And they're just blazing around in this big circle or whatever shape. And in the center of that, an impossibly tiny amount of space. There's all these protons and neutrons hanging out together, and they're way more massive than the electrons. For scale, to kind of get a sense of how big that is, the difference in size, it's like if you were to go stand at, like, Nationals Park or the Link and hold a pencil eraser at second base. That's the size of the nucleus, and the stadium is the size of the electron cloud flying and around. The
0: elect- and the electrons are the batteries getting whipped around
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so with the proton and the electron, you got the opposite charges and it takes a lot of force to hold all those positive charges of the protons together. I mean, they're hanging out with some neutrons, but there has to be something stronger than the electromagnetic force because everybody knows when you hold two ends of a magnet together and they don't want to go together, well, that's because they're the same charge and you have to flip it around and then they go neatly together. So the thing that's holding all those protons together is is a combination of the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. And as it turns out, we hadn't discovered this as a species for tens of thousands of years because it's very, very hard to do. But if you can figure out how to break the energetic bonds that hold all that stuff together, you can unleash an enormous, enormous amount of energy. And to illustrate that, we're gonna go into just a little bit more scientific depth, Nick, if you'll indulge me. So, Chemical explosives are made up basically of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, and you set them on fire and they explode. Yeah. You with me? Yeah, it's combustion. Exactly. So, for every carbon carbon bond that breaks, or every carbon hydrogen bond that breaks in the process of combustion, the amount of energy that's released from that is like three to five electron volts. Uh, It doesn't matter what an electron volt is, it's just a unit of measurement, it's like pounds for weight. It's just a unit, so don't worry about that. The point is that there are three to five of them for each of these little reactions. When you split an atom, on average, when you split that tiny little pencil eraser nucleus, you unleash on the order of 10 to 20 million electron volts. That's seven orders of magnitude more energy per event than chemical explosives. So it's... Way, way, way more powerful. The scale is so, so much bigger as to create a fundamentally different class of weapons. I mentioned, we we talked earlier about how they measure the yield, the explosive power of a bomb in terms of tons of TNT. Well, if you had a pound of TNT in your hand and you set it on fire, it would blow your arm off and probably kill you. So imagine you have 2,000 of those. That's a ton of TNT. That's 2,000 pounds of TNT. Imagine you have a thousand tons of TNT, a thousand piles of two thousand pounds of TNT. That's a one-kiloton bomb.
0: And that was so. Like, let me let me let me let me jump in with the scale here because I've seen some cool graphics on this, and like I I have to see things visually. I have to read in order. I I have to read and I have to see things visually. Like hearing lectures go in and out of my ears. Like I have to see the words or whatever. I remember very specifically a graphic that showed the first one-kiloton bomb that was tested in New Mexico was way more than like double the amount of all of the bombs that were used in World War One and World War II combined. It's like one test nuke, one time, was more than every other bomb that had been dropped in the two greatest wars in human history. Like, like that. All of them at once. It was in one test bomb. And then I learned from you, which you're going to get into a minute, that that was like the JV preseason version. There's a four-play version of Nukes, and then that thing was like quintupled by the thing we invented 20 years later. And that thing, the big one, which I forget what it's called. You can watch a video of it from Russia, and it is alarming. It is it's absolutely... Incredible. We'll link to it in the show nome. It is. It is actually kind of chills on the back of your spine still from 60s quality video. It is crazy. That thing combines... All the other things, all the other nukes that were tested was combined into that one and we had 30,000 of those. It's, Is that right did I get that right that one bomb was the World War II and then this thing
1: was all the other ones yeah it's it's truly truly astounding. It's crazy the, the device that was tested on July 16th, 1945 uh, it was tested it was called the Trinity test and it was named <laughs> so because it evoked so much power as, like, the only thing that we can compare this to is, like, the Lord God. And there's this famous quotation from Robert Oppenheimer, who was the director of Los Alamos National Lab, was overseeing the test. He quoted the Bhagavad Gita. He said, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. And it it was a really watershed moment. That thing, I think the estimated yield was on the order of, like, 10 kilotons, so 10,000 tons of TNT. The devices that were dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th and Nagasaki three days later on the 9th, those were roughly 12 to 15 kilotons apiece. And they were able to calculate that based on things like the radius of observable blast damage, the observable thermal burns on structures, how far away they found charred remains of people that had been melted into the asphalt. It's it's truly gruesome and shocking And, of course, World War II aficionados will be able to point out, hey, look, when the Allies bombed Tokyo with a huge firebombing campaign, they actually killed more people than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So what's the big deal? Well, the difference is it's a huge firebombing campaign. What was accomplished with hundreds of of bombs, dozens of planes, hours of bombing was accomplished with one device in one city by one plane. And to think that you could just do that over and over and over again with all the thousands of bombs that we have now. And you could do that from far away. You don't need to fly human beings over a drop site to have a successful bomb attack. You can just sit in a silo in Wyoming or Montana or Dakota, push a couple buttons, turn a key, make it like spies like us, and just throw some multi-megaton ICBMs at your adversary and see what happens. It's... It's really, really astonishing, just the scale of destructive power. And and that's where we get to what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. That it changes the order of punishment in warfare. You no longer have to be successful at war in order to punish your adversary. You can just punish right out of the gate. Because if you're losing in a war, you can just lob a nuclear weapon at the, the enemy's capital and literally level the playing field. Yeah. So that changes things quite a lot.
0: The way I, the analogy I came up with, and analogies and metaphors are something of a specialty of mine. It's like playing chess, and to start, you play like two or three moves, and then you just reach over and knock your opponent's king over. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you can keep, we, I don't, I, he's dead now.
1: We and that's it. There's nothing face. to come
0: back from. You have no response, really. Your only response is to knock mine over, and then at that point, we're not playing chess anymore.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. And, and what it's done is through the decades that we've had in the Cold War, we talked about strategic stability earlier. War fighters and policymakers in the Soviet Union and the United States had to figure out how to do this calculus as this technology was developing in the aftermath of the war. So for about four years, the U.S. was the only country in the world that had atomic weapons. And they're called atomic weapons because they just split the atom. Well years later uh, a guy by the name of Teller came up with the concept of the hydrogen bomb I'm mm. sure you heard of that it's the thermonuclear weapon well that involves using the power of this immensely powerful explosion to make nuclear fusion happen and that releases even more energy like orders of magnitude that's how you get like these megaton huge explosives and that technology had to grow and develop and arsenals were constantly being revised and added to and changed and that caused countries to have to rethink what are our targeting plans how are we going to use these things how our adversaries going to perceive that we use these things and it's just shocking how quickly things changed in the nuclear age and how much strategic thinking leaders had to do to kind of navigate that space and figure out how to not get their country destroyed, but also not just be coerced by a country that has nuclear weapons and can just bully them around. And eventually, yeah, so I, in, yeah, the, in the 70s, the U.S. and Soviet Union kind of came to a mutual understanding of mutually assured destruction. And it's our Dwight and Jim and Lieutenant Aldo Rain and Wilhelm examples from before. It's like, okay, I know that if I cross the line, you're going to nuke me. And if you cross the line, you know I'm going to nuke you. And that's actually pretty stable. We can continue to live in this environment. We're, we're always ready. But we know that we have a defined battle space where we can compete with each other that doesn't involve nuclear annihilation.
0: Yeah. And so I guess what where this gets tricky, and I suppose as someone, I believe you got your master's degree or whatever degree you have, 2017 or something. So maybe you'll be able to weigh in here. But where it gets tricky is, In my opinion, I I subscribe to memes as invented by Richard Dawkins, which is the idea that ideas are biological to some sense that in order to gain that understanding you have to have been there going through the scars and the reason that in a weird way the the Soviet Union now Russia and the US are the most advanced here is because we were the first ones so we know the holy shit moments of like all right well this actually is kind of irrelevant as long as we both are on the same page we have this relationship with each other and we've been there countries that have recently developed nuclear weapons are not psychologically they don't have the meme yet they don't understand what it took to get to this mutual this, this mutual understanding, they're just kind of being told by everyone what it is, and they're learning slowly and slowly. But, uh, but where it gets tricky for me is that if, if we're in a, in a spot now where not every country has them, some countries do, and they've been in the game since day one, and other countries haven't been in the game since day one, where it gets tricky is in which countries have which allies, where you say, maybe I don't have a nuke, but these guys right next to me are my best friends, and they do. And that country's like, yes... Yes, we do, but you can't go down to the street corner and talk smack just because your older brother has a nuke. Like, we're, we will use it, but we won't though. And that's yeah. where we get tricky in geopolitics today.
1: Yeah, for sure, and I think the most prescient example of what you're talking about probably can be found in the dynamic between India and Pakistan. So sure. the, the, basic, the basic concept there is that India has a hugely, hugely superior conventional military compared to Pakistan. And if they were to try to invade, they could pretty much do it. I mean, it would be really bloody and really terrible for security in the region and around the world, but they could do it. Except Pakistan realized that India has its own nuclear program. And if they're going to compete, and if they're going to be able to stave off this massive conventional superiority from India, they needed a secret weapon. They needed to counterbalance. And so it's not like they can just produce a lot more soldiers. It's not like they can just produce a lot more tanks. India is just a bigger country. So what they did instead was try to find an asymmetrical way to balance the scales. And that was through nuclear weapons. Yeah, They developed a bunch of smaller scale, sort of battlefield-ish nuclear weapons, which for comparison... A battlefield weapon would be one that could be launched kind of from the ground. It's designed to go a medium to short distance, which is terrifying for the guys who have to launch it. But it's supposed to hit battlefield targets like platoons and ground forces and low air support and that kind of thing. And so when Pakistan has this nuclear capability that they can answer India's conventional huge superiority with... The scales are kind of balanced, even though it's not the same kind of strategic stability as the Soviets and the Americans had in the Cold War. And then when you talk about, well, my big brother has nuclear weapons, China is another nuclear power, and they have borders with India and Pakistan. Incidentally, they also have borders with North Korea and Russia, so a lot of problems there. But uh-huh. China and Pakistan have and sort of what they call an all-weather friendship And they're rivals with India, which is a rising power in the region. And so the nuclear dynamic there is pretty complicated as well. And that's another set of countries with China and North Korea who don't have this strategic stability balance, but they do have ways to get what they want or at least avoid being pushed around because they can asymmetrically balance things with their own nuclear arsenals. And as you can see, it's pretty complex to navigate.
0: Right. And I guess like the, the, the thing I come back to this Richard Dawkins meme thing is like all of these, in my opinion, it's all like and it's all scalable. It's all relative. The thing that they're going through and that they didn't get to go through naturally because of, you know, Russia, Soviet Union, and United States kind of woke up was they never got to have their arms race which makes me worried that the the optimism is that, okay, hopefully they never will. Because if you have them, you're going to want to use them. Like, let's just build an infinite amount of them. China is the most industrious country on the planet right now. India manufactures things all the time. They're going to want to make them. And all that they have to tell them not to make them is big brother Russia and the US. And hey, don't, there's promise, we promise. Well, it's just like anything else. When you're you're going through college and high school, like, hey, don't have a long distance relationship. Hey, don't hook up with your ex. You're like, "Uh, no, it'll be fine. It'll be totally fine. Yeah, I'll be fine this time. No, the older person knows better than you. Shut up and listen to them. But you do it anyway. And I'm worried. My biggest fear is that China and Pakistan and India are like, yeah, thanks, U.S., thanks, Russia. We're going to do it anyway. We'll see what it feels like. Well, yeah. No. And,
1: and if, you're, if you're India, say, for example, you have a different historical memory of yourself than the U.S. does. I mean, the U.S. sees sure. itself as this rebellious former colony that threw off the yoke of tyranny, and it's the champion of the free world now. Well... India was ravaged by colonialism. It was split into several parts. Pakistan was physically divided on opposite sides of India. And it was because of British rules, because of these Western colonizers that basically established a new government the British way and then just left one day. Say, so, okay, sorry about that. And so now if you're India, your historical memories... Well, we were just humiliated unfairly at the hands of these Westerners who now want to, what, bully us around with their nuclear weapons? I don't think so. And so their nuclear program is not just a way to gain security or even gain influence in global affairs. It's a way to prove to everybody that, hey, the indigenous Indian way of doing things, yeah, we can take care of that too. And we can go toe-to-toe with anybody else out there. And so you're right. The trajectory that they have for getting their nuclear arsenal is different, and it's a lot shorter than the trajectory that the U.S. and Russia and other Western powers have taken. And... I think that different understanding of how one's own country relates to the nuclear saga can have some benefits and drawbacks. Uh, You kind of hinted at uh, the non-proliferation regime and what's to stop other countries from building nuclear weapons. The global nuclear non-proliferation architecture, so to speak, in the form of treaties, agreements, controls on material international nuclear safeguards through the International Atomic Energy Agency, that kind of thing... Is really the only check. And the sad truth of it is, the knowledge on how to build nuclear weapons is out there. Enough Mm -hmm. smart people in the world have had enough scientific education that they can figure it out. And so it really comes down to securing and accounting for the material. And it turns out that's really difficult to do.
0: Yeah. So you and I grew up in a place where, to be frank with you, you could go out in the desert and pick up uranium off the ground. Yeah, it, Wyoming, Wyoming is exactly.
1: is, uh, is the largest exporting state for uranium in the United States. It's not one of the bigger reserves in the world. I mean, Australia and Kazakhstan have a lot more, but certainly Wyoming Nebraska have a lot of uranium uh, in the crust. And it's difficult to, to keep track of all that. Now, that said, there are a lot of steps that you have to take to get sure, uranium yeah, from yeah. the ground to put into a new bomb. Yeah. you got to yep. clean it, mill it, purify it, enrich it, fashion it into metal, fashion it into a bomb which all of which is very very difficult to do and a lot of the technology that you would use for that kind of thing is controlled Uh, but that said, you could kind of figure that stuff out too and everyone's kind of nightmare scenario in fact it's the plot of the movie A Sum of All Fears (laughs) what if a terrorist organization like ISIS or Al Qaeda gets their hands on a nuclear weapon and they start making demands Yep. That changes things in a really unpredictable way, and it's kind of an unspeakable future that we kind of have to avoid at all costs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the the thing that I, I think back to where this where this again is different than any other a- analogy that we can have. A threat of violence. Jim and pa, or Jim and Dwight, if they agreed not to write each other up, but if they'd gotten written up, nothing would have happened. If a nuke goes off, that will be bad. For yeah, every single that. human being that is alive. So that's, I mean that's, and it's, it's, it's in a way the most complicated public, public goods, prisoner's dilemma game theory question that's ever been invented because it impacts other than disease and epidemic, it impacts every single human being who is alive now and who will ever be born. Yep. It is the ultimate game theory.
1: Quick shout out to the movie Threads, most harrowing film I've ever personally watched. It plays out that exact scenario and shows just how dangerous this game is. Really is.